Well, good evening. It is great to see you all out this evening and take your Bibles as we turn to the chapter that I imagine Jonah wished had never been written. Uh, Chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. And uh, we're going to spend a few moments there here this evening as uh, we do so. We have great opportunity to reflect on the study that we have had this summer as we have really this fall as we are spring. I'm, I'm all messed up. I know that it's not fall yet. I'm just planning for the fall right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, this spring we've been working our way through the book of Jonah. And uh, this is the chapter that I imagine that if Jonah had it to do all over again, and if Jonah could lead the Spirit of God in any way, which he cannot, uh, he would have left this chapter out. Uh, this is a chapter that does not paint Jonah in a very high position. And praise God that that is true. Isn't it wonderful how the Word of God is very real about the people of God? Uh, This is a negative picture. We leave here with a negative picture of Jonah. And uh, that is right. It is a right place for us, but we leave here with a high view of God. And that is also right. And so it's a good time for us to spend uh, tonight just a few moments in this book as we conclude it, Lord willing, This evening, there are times in our lives when we reflect back over a situation that God has placed us in, and we realize that we have truly acted foolish. Have you ever had those moments where maybe you were very forceful, or maybe you had a a very distinct uh, position or opinion, and you pushed that on other people, and then you realize, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have been so dogmatic about that issue. Maybe I really was being foolish. That's where we find Jonah. It may have been a situation where you were arrogant or self-serving, but just as likely it was a place where we believed that we knew better than God knew. So we're going to enforce our opinions. Jonah's world, can you imagine news trickling out of Nineveh after chapter 3? News is trickling out to Jerusalem, and they hear of the massive revival in their enemy's camp. News is trickling down into the Babylonian Empire, still very much fledgling, maybe not even more than just a group of tribal people starting to form together, but news is trickling down that something radical has happened in Nineveh. Can you imagine the shockwaves and the culture around Nineveh as they hear of them repenting and following after the things of the God of Israel of all things. If Jonah were alive today, he would have had, he would have had a speaking tour, news crews following him around, people begging for an interview with him, book deals already having been inked, budding pastors and prophets all seeking to follow after the Jonah model. They would have read books. They would have listened to his podcasts, listened to his sermons, He would have had invites to speak to evangelistic conferences and all kinds of spotlight would have been put onto Jonah. Fortunately, none of that would happen because, unfortunately for Jonah, the book did not end with chapter 3. There's a chapter 4. One of the reasons, and it's been said, and I'm paraphrasing it just slightly, It has been said that one of the reasons people blame others is their own fear of self-assessment. 
One of the reasons that we blame others is our own fear of a genuine self-reflection. And that's Jonah. And the Lord is going to shine the spotlight, not the spotlight of fame, not the spotlight of book deals, not the spotlight of podcasts, but the Lord is going to shine the spotlight onto Jonah's heart. And we're going to see Jonah revealed. And so this morning as we look into, or this evening as we look into Jonah's anger, sorry, I bumped ahead, Jonah's anger, we are going to look deeply into this idea. The Lord's compassion and mercy is not limited by our sinful, selfish ambitions and desires. Amen? Can you imagine if the mercies of God were limited upon our willingness to be the dispensary of God's mercies? But God's mercy is not limited by our incapacities, by our weaknesses, by our failures, by our selfish ambition. This evening, I want to read all of chapter 4, and we're going to dig into the text together then. And so the scripture says this, beginning in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, and it made it, it, made it to be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, on the, up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. The sun rose, got appointed, or when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, tonight we bow our heads before you, having the opportunity before us to look into a chapter that paints the prophet of God, Jonah, in a negative light. We see a book that ends with questions, and really more than one is a host of questions. And just as abruptly as it had begun, it ends. So Lord, I pray tonight we would not be afraid of doing some self-reflection, the assessment to view the way that we view others around us and the opportunities that are presented to us to share Christ. Give me the words to say as we dig through this last chapter of this narrative that has been so instructive to us. Give us a heart that is unlike Jonah's in this chapter. A heart that pities more than a plant. A heart that has compassion on a lost and dying world while they may be 
those who have declared themselves to be enemies of the cross. May we be those who are ambassadors, sharing the good news of Christ to them. So Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding hearts and a desire and an appetite for your word tonight, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This evening we begin with Jonah's fleshly perspective. We see this pull out for us immediately in Jonah's anger in verse 1. And we read the text together, but now I want to break it apart in these chunks. And so we start in verse 1, and it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What was it that displeased Jonah? Well, let's go back to verse 6 of the previous chapter and read through the narrative as it unfolds. As it has been found in verse 6, we're really focusing on the king of Nineveh. In verse 5, we're focusing on the people of Nineveh. And earlier in the chapter, we're focusing on the message that Jonah has preached. But in verse 6 and following, we read these words. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. As we studied last week, that is, he repented in every way. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not be fed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What's fascinating about the next verse in chapter 4 is Jonah is angry, not at the repentance of the people of Nineveh, but at God's relenting. At God's relenting. Jonah is upset with God. Jonah is angry that God is not burning down Nineveh. That is what upsets Jonah. Jonah's anger is seething. He sees the mass repentance of the Ninevites, and immediately through his thoughts, and we know this because he records it in chapter 4, but immediately through his thoughts, he's thinking, I knew that God would do this. I bet he won't even destroy them. I knew that God was going to show them mercy. And Jonah's anger, as more people come to repentance, as the king comes to repentance, Jonah is becoming increasingly incensed against God. He assumes that what he is seeing is God relenting, and Jonah believes that God is wrong. That God doesn't know what Jonah knows. It violates Jonah's own moral code. The first phrase of verse 1 indicates that Jonah believed that this is a great evil. It says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah believes that this is an evil act and it moves him to seething anger. Why? Well, part of it comes from a misguided patriotism. A misguided patriotism. Look at verse 2, the scripture says this, And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why, or what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is, this is a great passage on the character of God. Verse 2 is one of those passages you should memorize about the character of God. This is, as Jonah is describing God, this is a good description of who God is. And that's why Jonah doesn't want to go to the Ninevites, because the Ninevites are Ninevites. They're Assyrians. They're the enemies, the sworn enemies of Israel. They're the ones who have sought to bring disaster upon Israel. If you were to go to the Oriental Institute today in the city of Chicago, and I've mentioned this several times, but one of the prisms that is there, it's a, or an obelisk rather, it's a large obelisk, it has the first relief of a Jewish king. And the Jewish king is Joab, and he is bowing to an Assyrian king. That's the first depiction of a Jewish king. And what is he doing? He's bowing to an Assyrian. This is not friendly relationships. The Assyrians wanted to destroy Israel, and Israel hated the Assyrians. Put yourselves in Jonah's sandals for a moment. Here is a great, the greatest nation. He has come up to the capital city, one of the capital cities of the greatest nation on earth at the time. They are mortal enemies of Israel. And yet, the God of Israel has seen fit to allow them to repent. In his finite mind, this would be a violation of what Jonah knew to be right. Not only were they sworn enemies, but they were Gentiles. And mind you, Christ had not come yet. There was, uh, to the Jewish mind, not a redemptive plan for those who were not Jews. So Jews, the Israelites, were the people of God, and they were to be the light to a lost world. But no one else was to receive the Lord God of Israel. It was Israel's alone, at least in their minds. And Jonah, being a prophet, he is one who has taught this, instructed this, and now God is confronting him with this error. Even in his prayer, we see a man who knows the heart of God. He prays in verse 2, and he confesses who God is. And this is what has motivated him to flee. Before all this started, Lord... This is why I went to Joppa. This is why I got on a boat. This is why I wanted to sail for Tarsus, because I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. Jonah knows the character of God. What he is angry about is that God showed that character to somebody other than the Israelites. That God showed it to the Ninevites. We must be very cautious, even in our day and age. We live in a different dispensation. Our dispensation is that we are to be ambassadors. We are to share the gospel message. We are to be those who are great commission workers. And so we do not have, or we ought not to have, the ideas that there are enemies too, be, too far beyond the saving grace of our great God and Savior. We are to be those who are pursuing that, even if they are our enemies. But it is pretty easy for us to look across the political aisle and say, you know what, the Lord's not going to save them. Or to look at our enemies around the world and say, 
there's no, there's no way that the Lord is going to reach them. And so we rescind, we relent from our obedient command that we are to follow. Jonah knows the character of God and he's angry that God is revealing himself to the Ninevites. We are to go into all the world to proclaim the message of the gospel and we are to cross ethnic lines. We are to cross political lines. We are to cross generational lines to share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that not be a barrier to you. Having served seven years in the city of Chicago, I came and served a number of years in Kansas where our community in Kansas was about 98%, 99% Republican and 100% conservative. And then we come to Chicago where it's 107% liberal and 120% Democrat. You can check the voting records. That's where it's at. So we came from one political spectrum to the other. Those are difficult conversations, let me tell you. But we are called to do that. We are called to cross those political lines for the sake of Christ. The Lord is about to confront Jonah with some faulty perspectives, of Jonah's faulty perspectives. And notice how he does that, beginning in verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Boy, that's the top one on your prayer list. That's Jonah's prayer, verse 3. And the Lord said, and these are probing questions. I praise the Lord that these are recorded for us. These are probing questions. Can you imagine Jonah trying to answer the question of verse 4? And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? When the Lord asks you those kinds of questions, relent of your pride. Jonah does not. He's going to press it further. But consider the compassion and the mercy of God shown to Jonah in this moment. Jonah, you went against my word, against my command. You boarded a ship to from Joppa to Tarsus, I had mercy on you and on those who were on top of the water. And the first revival of Jonah's ministry bursts out in the midst of a calm sea as Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Revival breaks out. The, The ship's captain and the crew are praising God when the seas are stilled. That's revival number one under Jonah's ministry in the book of Jonah. And Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. Three days he's going to be there, and he's going to become the example in Matthew's gospel of what Christ will do when he is in the tomb for three days. We're going to look at that by the time we're done this evening. And so the Lord is going to use Jonah as an example of the death and resurrection of Christ. Consider the mercy of God to this prophet. Then Jonah is sent to Nineveh, and the greatest revival perhaps in all of human history unfolds right before Jonah's eyes, and Jonah has preached an eight-word message. And here's Jonah, 
Lord, just kill me. I want to die. And we see the mercy of God again to this prophet. Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry? How many times have you and I crossed our arms and said, God, just take me away from this situation. I don't want to be here. These people are a mess. I'm a mess. The situation's a mess. Just get me out of here. Have you ever done that? You don't have to answer that. Just get me out of here. Yet consider the mercy of God demonstrated to Jonah in this probing question. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? I imagine that Jonah wishes, we've already seen it and I've expressed it in one way, I'm going to express it in another way. I imagine Jonah wishes that chapter 4 never would have taken place. This is a low point for the prophet. Just as much as it was a low point for the prophet when he stood on the deck of the ship being tossed to and fro by the waves and the wind, and he says, just throw me overboard. I'll take my chances with God in eternity. Throw me overboard. That's a low point. And it may seem, and some commentators believe, that Jonah is suicidal, and I disagree with that. I don't believe that Jonah is suicidal. He's certainly asked to be drowned. He cuts to the heart of the issue, and he asks the, Lord's, the Lord here just to take him. But I don't think Jonah is being suicidal. It appears to me that Jonah cannot bear to see these people repent. He's willing to die so that they won't be given grace and mercy. Think of how opposed to God's character, that is. Jonah was called to be the mouthpiece, the prophet of God to the people of Israel and to the people of Nineveh. He served both. And his message was to relate what God was saying through him to the people, and yet Jonah's heart is diametrically opposed to the heart of the Lord, the character of God. We can do the same thing. It's easy for us to find ourselves in Jonah's sandals, not representing the heart of God, but rather representing our own fleshly ambitions and pursuits. It does not seem fit to Jonah that God would spare these pagan people. If he had read or spoken to his contemporary prophets of Hosea and Amos, he would have known that these people were going to be used of the Lord to destroy northern Israel. It's at the same time that Jonah is experiencing these details and writing them out that Amos and that Hosea are also writing and receiving revelation from the Lord. And the revelation that they are receiving says that it's going to be the Assyrians that are going to take out the northern portion of the nation of Israel. So Jonah has a seething anger, a seething hatred for the Assyrians. He knows that it's this people that God has called him to that are going to be the ones who are going to destroy Israel. In verse 4, we've already asked this grueling question. But if we ask this question when we are angry, when we ask this question of ourselves, when we do the self-assessment, we would be a lot more humble when it comes to these moments. If you were to say to yourself in that moment of seething anger, 
Do I do well to be angry? Boy, that is a deflation to our selfish pride and anger. Jonah responds. Imagine this kind of response. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah ignores the question. He doesn't answer it. What does he do? He pouts. It's childish. He takes his ball and he goes to the hill. <laughs> I'm going home. I do not want this to happen. In fact, the phraseology that he went to the east means that he went out in front of the city. He wanted to see what God was going to do and he wanted to watch it in all of its spectacle as long as God was going to destroy it. And if God wasn't going to destroy it, then he was going to leave. That's the phraseology. Is he's, he's ready to move on. Jonah knows that there's little hope of his desired outcome, but he's going to go test it anyway. I'm not going to answer God's question. I'm going to go sit out on the hillside, out in the desert, to the east of the city. To the east of the city, the sun would rise at his back, and he's watching the city all day. He builds for himself. He, he's so committed to being there that he builds for himself a little booth, a little tent to sit inside and not burn, and that's clearly not doing the job as the Lord will provide another object lesson of grace to him. But he's willing to go his own way. The idea of Jonah building his own booth is God didn't call him out to the outside of the city. God did not say, Jonah, once you have delivered the message, you can go sit and watch the fireworks on the hill outside the city walls. God did not say to Jonah, I know you're angry, go take some time and cool off in the desert. God did not say that. But Jonah tried it anyway. He was so committed to it that he built for himself a little booth that he could try to get out of the sun. It's not helping, but he's trying anyway. He's willing to go his own way. Beloved there's an object lesson for us here. When you are willing to go out of your way to try to supply your own needs, to go against God's direction, stop. Stop. Jonah could have been in the city of Nineveh watching this revival unfold and praising God for his mercy demonstrated to the sworn enemies of Israel. But he doesn't. He's pouting on the hill. He's pouting on the hill. The object lesson that God is going to use begins to grow. Notice verse 6, And the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Do you notice the mercy of God? Notice the phrases. Notice the statements. God appointed a plant. I don't know about you. My soil at home is very sandy. I can't get things to grow all summer long. They grow very short, let alone a plant that suddenly bursts out of the hot burning soil of the desert and is enough to shade Jonah. That's a significant plant. It's not some wimpy little plant. 
This is enough to shade Jonah and to provide relief because God was saving Jonah from his discomfort. That's mercy. Put yourself now on the opposite side. God has said, Jonah, obey me. Jonah has done everything to disobey God and uh, that has caused him to be swallowed by a fish, spit up onto the shore, and now he is in Nineveh, a massive revival, and so God is allowing him to sit out in the desert hot. And what does God do? He shades him. He shades him. If I'm the one giving the commands, I'm like, burn. Let's see how long you last out here in the desert before you go crying into Nineveh for water. Let them save you. But God doesn't do that. God demonstrates mercy to Jonah. And he provides a way for Jonah to cool off physically, but also to cool off his attitude, his anger. But Jonah is glad because of the plants but he's going to be unrepentant in his attitude. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is unrepentant in his attitude. The next day, This plant is still beautiful, and suddenly a worm begins to infect the plant, and the plant withers and begins to shrivel, and the east wind picks up, and with it probably a sandstorm of smaller magnitudes, just uh, that kind of sand that just begins to uh, hurt the skin as it pelts the skin, and the plant is destroyed. Jonah's sour attitude returns as the sun rises with its searing heat. Scripture is painting quite the picture, is it not? You'll notice we have, as our background, an older painting that is of Jonah. That was an original artwork of Jonah. And the Scriptures are painting quite the picture. Jonah is sitting there outside the gates of the city. He would rather die, and he brings up the question again. His next prayer request, it's, It's interesting, the number of times that Jonah prays throughout the book, and only one of them is a good prayer. The rest of the time, he's whining to the Lord. And here he's whining to the Lord again. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord begins to not only deal with Jonah in his fleshly perspective, but the Lord begins to deal with him in his priorities, his selfish priorities. What is the source of Jonah's anger now? We saw the source of it earlier was a misguided patriotism, and he knew the character of God, and he didn't want the Ninevites to live. So we understand that one earlier. Now Jonah's angry again. This is the second time that he's angry. He's angry here because of his selfish priorities, and that is the source of Jonah's anger. And... uh, The Lord asks the question again. The Lord says, 
in verse 9, he says, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is the second time. It's a little bit different question, but it's the same thrust. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? No answer from Jonah other than he goes to pout. The second time that the question is asked is, Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry about the plant? You did nothing for that plant. You didn't water it. You didn't plant it. You just absorbed its shade. That's all you did, Jonah. Do you do well to be angry at the plant? There is self-pity, self-seeking, and self-serving all dripping out of how Jonah responds. Jonah says this, yes, yes. Isn't that a shocking statement? I'm shocked by that. I read through the text, and if God is saying, do you do well? I take that as a subtle hint, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When the Lord is saying it as he is saying it here, and Jonah doesn't pick up on that. He doesn't accept the subtlety of it. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I'm angry, Lord. This is that person who's blaming others. He's blaming the Lord because he's afraid of doing the self-assessment. Jonah does not want to ask the real question of what's going on in his own soul, in his own heart. The Lord has called each of us to use the gifts that he has given to us for his glory. There are times that this will require you to do something towards someone who you know is going to treat you poorly. Years ago, I had a situation where I didn't even notice what was going on. I thought my heart was right. I was in pastoral ministry, but a number of things had affected me. People had committed things against me, and they were wrong, and I thought I had forgiven them, but I really had not forgiven them. And it took a sober assessment to really get to the heart of the matter. The matter wasn't with them. The matter was in here. I had reserved the right to harm them, at least in some way in my mind. That's what it means to not forgive. So I'm reserving the right to pay you back. That's unforgiveness. And while I had forgiven, I had harbored just enough. Jonah is doing the similar kind of thing here. These are times when the Lord is going to, there will be times rather, when the Lord is going to ask you, is going to require you to do something such as share the gospel with someone you know is going to treat you poorly. That maybe it's somebody that you simply don't like. But you have a responsibility in some way to minister to them. Our society would say, act like Jonah. And trust me, your flesh wants to act like Jonah. But you know the character of God. And so why do you become angry? Jonah was angry at the loss of a plant. Meanwhile, God was teaching him of the value of the thousands of people who inhabited the walls of Nineveh. They were on the edge of eternity. The plant shriveled. It had no soul had no life except that God would give it and that God would take it away. Thousands of people were on the edge of eternity, an eternity that was to be separated from God. 
would God not have compassion on them whom he has created? That's the story. That's the narrative of the book of Jonah. God has compassion on those that he created in his special creation. You and I and those who are lost. It makes us question, and this is more of a question than a point, what are our real priorities? What is your real priority? I wonder how many times we are more concerned about the plant than the real work. The plant is easy to focus on. We didn't work for it. We didn't labor for it. I don't know what the plant is and that the Lord is working you through. I know what the plant is for Jonah. It was a literal plant. But the Lord is using it as an object lesson to teach Jonah of God's compassion. Jonah didn't work for the plant. He didn't labor for the plant. He didn't even prune the plant. He just sat in its shade. God is saying, if you're concerned about the plant, what about the thousands of people who are behind the walls of the city of Nineveh? Those who, God speaking, created them. Those who God had sent Jonah to. (laughs) And that was work alone to get Jonah there. The ones that God had delivered a message to. As a fellowship of believers, it is often easier for us to focus on our way of thinking and our own desires and our own ambitions while we forget that there's a world of hurt and a world of loss constantly before us. That's what the entire Critical Thinking series was all about, is to acquaint us with those who have no hope. And they need to know the hope that is found in Christ. And so we have the same opportunities as Jonah. Those who declare themselves, self-declare themselves to be our enemies. We should not see them as our enemies. We should see them as those that need Christ. They don't like you. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to call you names. They're going to persecute you as much as they can possibly persecute you. But you are to love them for the sake of Christ. You were to share with them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to placate their ideas. Not to accept them in their sinful condition as they are. But to tell them of the hope that is found in Christ. Jonah refused. Jonah was more concerned about the plant than about the people. So God then reminds Jonah of his misguided passion. Jonah's passionate. You better believe that. He's willing to die. That's that's. Pretty intense passion. And Jonah's passionate. Notice verses 10 and 11 as the book comes to a close. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We begin by saying that Jonah's misguided passion is against God's compassion. It's against God's compassion. The Lord is seeking to reprioritize the heart of Jonah, and he's saying, you're concerned about the plants. Look at the people. Look at the people. The Lord's compassion is deeper than, though, the thousands of souls that are 
that were previously lost in the city of Nineveh. It is also a genuine love and compassion toward the heart of a continuously rebellious prophet. God is compassionately showing Jonah again his mercy and grace. At this point, Jonah's work is done, right? He's gone into Nineveh. He's preached his eight-word message. Thousands of, tens of thousands of people have, ex- have repented, have turned back to the, turned for the first time to the God of Israel. Mass revival is happening. Jonah's work is done. Why didn't God just say, okay, you can have your wish? God is again showing compassion and mercy and giving Jonah the opportunity for his own repentance, that Jonah would repent. And God goes the extra step of showing him the value of the Ninevites. And he does this as he demonstrates his work. Nineveh, we're told here, is a city of 120,000 souls, and that's likely the count of the male citizens of Nineveh, the men, not the children, not the women, 120,000 men, pointing us somewhere close to 500 to 600,000 inhabitants of the city of Nineveh, which is a massive city. Jonah says that they did not know their right from their left, and he says it this way, that they did not know their right hand from their left hand, and that is the idea of being spiritually blinded. That's the phraseology we find several times throughout the Old Testament that speaks of the people's not being able to know what direction they should go because they have spiritual blinders on. So Jonah is saying that they were lost spiritually, ignorant of the things of the one true God. And yet right then in that moment, there is revival beginning to happen in the city of Nineveh. And thousands of people were repenting. But the Ninevites, and listen carefully, The Ninevites are not the theme of the book. They're not the theme. Jonah is not the theme of the book. God is. God is. The repentance of the Ninevites, as significant as it was, only serves to point out the incredible compassion of a merciful, gracious God who would reach out to the Gentile pagan nation around Israel and tell them of his mercy and love and his power to overcome man's finite limitations. God is the hero. That is why I'm thankful for chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. Because chapter 4 is the chapter that doesn't let us go, wow, look at what Jonah did. Wow, look at Jonah. That's how we view chapter 4. And praise God for his compassion and mercy. God is the hero. He is compassionate. He is powerful. And he is just in all of his ways. As we conclude the book, we must note that Jonah's experiences point to the one who is greater than Jonah. In fact, it is fascinating to me, and uh, we're done. We're going to close out of the book of Jonah here, and as we do so, I want you to turn to the New Testament. Turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. I've 
saved this passage, as tempting as it has been many times to go here, I've saved it for tonight, Matthew chapter 12, because I want you to see how God would use this reluctant, disobedient prophet. Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, the scripture there says this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, for just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. The men of Nineveh, 41, says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Did you catch that? On the day of judgment for the nation of Israel, specifically this generation of the nation of Israel, the Ninevites will judge the people, the dis obedient people of Israel. Why? Because they listened to the preaching of a reluctant prophet. And the people of Israel during the time of Christ refused to listen to the Son of God, the Messiah who was promised. We see Jesus arguing the point, for one, the historicity of Jonah. So for all those scholars who say, well, Jonah, that's a, that's a great story, but it's not literal, Jesus believes it's literal. He just said it was. He used it as the example of what he was going to do when he would die and rise again. He would use Jonah's three days in the fish as the pattern for the resurrection that was to come in a few more chapters in the book of Matthew. So Jesus believes it was literal. Jesus believed it happened exactly that way, and he is God, so it happened that way. We also recognize then that Jesus could have stopped here, but he goes on and he says, there was a reluctant, disobedient prophet who preached to a pagan people and they repented. But you, Israel, who are standing in the presence of the promised one of Isaiah, you, Israel, who know that or should know that I am the Messiah, You have not repented. You have rejected the Son of God. And so Christ would use this prophet, as reluctant as he was, to be the example of the resurrection. Did God not demonstrate mercy to this prophet? To to that we must say, amen, God is a merciful God. And praise God he is, because you and I are both like Jonah. We are those who stand with our arms crossed and say, Lord, you got me in this mess now. You get me out of it. And we stomp our little feet and we pout over in the corner. Let us learn from Jonah's negative example. Let us not follow his pattern. The book of Jonah ends as abruptly as it started. It actually ends in a question. Several questions that are really there. Those divine questions focus on the perspectives. What were the perspectives of Jonah? What were the priorities of Jonah? What were the passions of Jonah? And those answers for Jonah and for the Lord are profound. We cannot answer for Jonah, but we can answer for ourselves. 
let us obey God like the wind did, like the waves did, like the fish did, like the plant did, like the worm did, like the wind again did, and like the people of Nineveh did. Eight times in the book of Jonah, we have something other than the prophet obeying God and following after God. Let us be like those eight examples and let us obey God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it has been a joy for us to study the book of Nineveh or the book of Jonah together as we've studied the Ninevites, Jonah himself, more importantly than those we've studied you. Lord, I praise you for this testimony that Jonah has said that you are a merciful, loving kind, God of loving kindness. May we focus in on that characteristic. And though Jonah would take it negatively, we are those who understand with greater appreciation because of Christ, your great mercy demonstrated to us. Largely, in this room at least, would be Gentiles who were outside of Israel and yet are inside the family of God because of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Lord, we thank You for our time spent in the book of Jonah. And as we depart from this study and we move on to our next study, we ask that You would give us understanding hearts that would glorify You that we would constantly be reminded of Jonah, not because, only because of his testimony, but because of the example that Christ would make him to be in pointing to the resurrection of our Savior. Lord, we are enamored, we are in awe that Christ would die for us and three days later rise again. And so we want to be those who dwell upon these great truths for your glory and for our good. Lord, as we depart from here this evening, bless us as we go, that we would be faithful ambassadors, willing to be the voice of a God who is merciful, gracious, and compassionate, willing to set aside our own preconceived notions, willing to take a sober self-assessment, not to blame others, but to be found obedient, that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our study tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen.